Circle K is America's thirst stop. And yours. Especially when the weather gets... And you need to stay... Stay refreshed on the go with ice-cold Circle K favorites like freshly ground iced coffee, Froster, Polar Pop Cup, and more. And right now at Circle K, save on all 20-ounce Pepsi products. Three for $4.25. When life's go, 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 make us your first stop. Because Circle K is America's thirst stop. Hey, I'm David Eliku, and this is The Knowledge, a place to consider big and emerging ideas for anyone obsessed with learning more and living better. Each week, I'll share what I'm learning and speak to a variety of guests to hear what they've learned about navigating the world around us. This week, I'm speaking with Joycelyn Mate, the co-founder of Afrocentrics, the UK's number one Afro hair care brand and the first to be stocked in Whole Foods UK. We're talking all about their amazing journey building this brand over the course of 10 years, the process of scaling it and the challenges they faced in raising half a million pounds of venture funding, particularly as black women founders. If you love this episode, please do share it with a friend and don't forget to leave a review. You'll probably also love my amazing newsletter I send out every Sunday at theknowledge.substack.com. But take me back like, I don't know, 10 years or so, because you guys have been at this for a while. What were the early days? Like, where did this come from? And what were the early days of building Afrocentrics and things starting to come together? Um, so the early days, I would say the first three, not three years, the first seven years were spent doing a lot of research and development, finding product market fit, which isn't very hard when it comes to Afro hair products, because a lot of the products on the market when we started were from America and they weren't available in the UK in the way that they are now. Um, and then also most women didn't wear their hair naturally will wear their own hair out generally so weaves wigs braids have always been a big styling option for black women which is absolutely fine but a lot of them wear wear those styles because they don't know what to do with their hair so that's why mm. afrocentrics are set up to meet the need of providing products um, so that you can care for your hair but then also giving you the education to care for your own hair that's a really key piece in what we do so we blog we do videos we do a lot of social media content um that is scientifically that scientifically shows people how to care for their hair. So we debunk a lot of myths and things like that. So back then it was more <clears throat> about trying to find people who would actually want to buy our products. We had three products that were formulated, two oils and a spray. They were not great, <laughs> but people <laughs> like them. And when I say they're not great, I mean like we put glycerin in an oil, which you don't okay. do because glycerin is a product that needs to go into water um we the smells weren't right but you know we at that point it was the minimum viable product but we didn't know all the startup jargon then so we just said oh we've got something let people try it see if people are interested we had a landing page that had an email address and people were emailing us saying oh yeah we like this oil Mm. oh actually let me go back to that um we made 50 hair oils and 50 massage oils we don't do massage oils now but we just thought maybe we could do body and hair and we sold them at a trade, like a little community fair in Neesden, which is in northwest London. Um, and then from there, people found the landing page and were emailing us saying they liked the oil and they wanted more. But we didn't have an online website where people could buy it from. So then we quickly built that. Um, well, we didn't build it ourselves. We got someone to build it. It was a horrid website. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but people were, you know, getting through the mishaps of the website and, and buying the product mm. so we had the three four 20 pounds at that time but even like towards the start of that that still sounds quite sophisticated in terms of the the tools you had the products you had i mean was that always the initial vision did you start from the beginning and were like 
boom, we just want to create this thing. Like what was the inertia behind that? We, we never planned the business. <laughs> we didn't think, oh, we need to make Afro hair products. Mm. The market's lucrative. Let's, let's do that. Um, the, the, the journey started with <clears throat> me. I, w- I was experiencing, the journey started with me. I was experiencing, um, traction alopecia, which is, um, hair loss caused by tight styling. Okay. And I needed something to grow about my hair. So I started doing research, found natural ingredients, made myself hair oil, had extra, gave it to Rachel because we met at university she was the other black girl in halls that we ended up being friends on the way to a bar crawl <laughs> <laughs> um and um I, yeah i just had this hair oil which i gave to rachel she used it on her skin and was like shocked that she wasn't allergic to it because she's allergic to life and has really bad eczema and she got excited and said, you should make this for more people like us. This has grown back your hair. It's great for my skin. I'm not allergic to it. And I said, ah, I didn't really come to university to start a business. And she said, let's do it together. And we did. We did it together. We started from, so, so the initial hair oil I made is not what we have now, mm. but we started from scratch together. Um, and I remember sitting in Rachel's halls where she had a little pipette and was dropping essential oils into different um, bowls trying to get the scent, signature scents that we have now yeah. using essential oils. We had headaches at the end of the day because you shouldn't do that, <laughs> but we did. Um, but that's how we started. It was never, let's get into this because there's loads of money to be made and it's a lucrative market. When we started, there was no Instagram. Mm. There was just Twitter and Facebook, which are very different to what they are now. There were no Facebook ads. There were no Twitter ads. You literally just had your audience that you built on Facebook, your followers, and the newsletter. That was all the digital marketing there was at that time. Um, maybe Reddit, because Rachel did do Reddit. Um, and that that's how we started. Wow. And with that initial product, I know that you said, I guess, at least compared to what you do now, it was definitely not the same and it was not as good. But, you know, at least Rachel had a positive reception to it. So it must have been good or like did it at least work and then also what was the initial response like when you started selling this on campus I'm guessing like what was the initial response was it always like wow this is amazing or was it something that you had to keep developing even from an early stage the response we had really good response we weren't selling it on university campus we were selling them at like hair shows okay um, and then we initially, we finally built an e-commerce website, which was on WordPress, um, which I would never recommend because we <laughs> had to get a developer to change anything on the back end, um, which is obviously costly. Um, so we were selling it online and at like Afro hair shows that were usually on the weekend. We'll drive to Birmingham. Well, actually, we were in Birmingham. We'll drive to London, Manchester, Nottingham to do these shows um, to get our name out there. We'll do maybe 10 minute talks at these shows just so that people could um, get to know the brand a little. Um, and the reception was good. People really liked the product. Um, as I said, it wasn't that great because we didn't get the smell right mm. um, with the first product we ever had. Um, we didn't get the composition right because we literally just mixed things together. But then we got some really, really tiny angel investment. It was like 10 grand back then, which was a lot of money for us. We gave away way too much equity <laughs> for that 10 grand, but we're very naive. We were 18, 19. What do you know then? Mm-hmm. Didn't know anything about the startup world. Didn't know anything about VCs, nothing. So it's just like, okay, these guys want to put money in. Sure. We need the money. Um, and then with that investment, one of the guys was actually a formulation scientist and he used to develop products for Number 7, which is the Boots brand. Um, and he's the one who consulted and helped us get our products to the quality that they are now. He put processes in place to make sure that we were scientifically formulating with before we were literally just mixing oils. That's why I said it was a minimum viable product. It was like, let's just put stuff together and see what people um, yeah. say and people really did like it they liked the ingredients they liked the fact that you know it didn't give them like it worked basically that's what they liked that's pretty awesome and you talked about the journey of having to then find product market fit what was that like 
it's not too hard <laughs> when you have a um, product that works. Yeah. Um, so with Afrocentrics, what makes us different, and there are more companies in the space now, granted there are more that have popped up since we've been around, there's natural hair care, but the natural hair care that is on the market is is geared towards straighter hair types. Um there weren't very many companies, if any, when we were around doing natural hair care for Afro hair. Afro hair is very different to other hair types and it requires products that are formulated for Afro hair first. Not this is a nice product, but it works on Afro hair. It's this is a product that is for Afro hair. Hmm. So we and this has always been a, a key pillar of us. We formulate using natural ingredients wherever possible. So if it's not possible, we're going back to the drawing board and we'll use natural ingredients. And that's what made makes us different. Um, so finding customers who wanted to wear their hair naturally but didn't know what to do, um, who wanted really good products but didn't have access to them because they were all in America back in 2010, um, finding those kinds of customers we used, as I said, we built an audience on Facebook. We used to do videos. Rachel and I lived together at university, so we'd sit in our kitchen and just record on my laptop and put them on YouTube, just talking about hair. Um, we'd go to these um, Afro hair shows um, and have a stand with flyers and whatnot, talking to people about hair. Um, and we realised that um, a lot of the hair brands weren't actually telling you how to care for your hair. They would showing you how to style your hair or how to make your hair shiny or how to slick down your edges. It wasn't about actually caring for your hair. Mm. And that's what we major on. If you know how to care for your hair, you will know how to style it. But if you're just too busy thinking about, I need to make it look nice um, and putting damaging products in it to get it to the point where it looks nice, um, you, you know, you've skipped the whole bit before. It's kind of like, if you're wearing loads of makeup to cover up your flaws, but you're not actually working on your skincare to get rid of the acne or the hyperpigmentation, mm. you're just constantly wearing makeup to cover all of the flaws. And you're just going to be in a vicious circle of I've got this breakout, cover it with makeup rather than actually dealing with the issue at hand. Yeah. And I know that towards the start of the journey, like you said, there was a lot less, not necessarily competition, but a lot less of other businesses that were focusing on that particular niche where, where it's natural and Afro hair care, and then also being able to educate people on how to take care of their hair. How do you feel like the market responded to that in terms of, I guess, partly like the incumbents in that space, and then also um, going and reaching out to retailers? I know that you guys are stocked in quite a few retailers now. What was that journey like in terms of trying to get them to understand the importance of mm -hmm. something that they have historically overlooked? So going to retailers, we decided that we wanted to go to health food stores. So places like Holland and Barrett, Whole Foods, those types of stores, because um, we wanted to reach an audience that is looking for products for Afro hair um, and is health conscious. Okay. So if you're going to a health food store, you are already health conscious, but there's nothing there for them. So we'll walk into the stores. I remember I used to do this. <laughs> I'd literally walk in with a bottle of the oil and a flyer and told them, I've got this product for Afro hair. Will you stock it? And it was good to do that because we got some feedback. And some of the feedback we got is, and they'll say very diplomatically and kindly, but it doesn't look nice and it, don't, it won't stand out on the shelf. So it was something that we worked on to get our products to look nice and to stand out on the shelf. Um, I'm, and currently we've got the brown um, bottles of like the orangey peachy labels where before it was white. Mm. Um, it was just the white, yeah, white packaging, whatever. Um, so that was really good exercise to do to see, okay, what, what would make you want to stock a product like this? Um, and then when we did, you know, get some stores, we would say we'll do in-store promotions. So we'll stand in the stores and, and talk to the customers and let them know that we're here and that we have products because people with Afro hair weren't used to going into those stores and finding things for them. You're just so used to not having things for you. Mm. Um, so it was a lot of work to 
Um, not only were we a new product, we were bringing them a new market. So it was, you know, <laughs> man hours trying to do that. I remember we did one in G Baldwin's, which is a store in Canberra, while Rachel was pregnant and we were standing there um, <laughs> sampling. But we loved it because we loved speaking to customers because you get feedback, you get, okay, actually, I don't like this, I don't like that, blah, blah, blah. And that's how we've been able to, to grow the brand to what it is now, customers first. Yeah. And you talked about the the journey of becoming more sophisticated as well in terms of the actual product what were some of the main challenges in terms of because i think right now and this is also part of the challenge for a lot of kind of budding entrepreneurs or people that want to create things um you know there's lots of people that are just making random products in their kitchen and there's not much certification or much you know by way of like actually knowing, okay, does this work? Will this work for me? Will this work for like my type of hair? Um, and a lot of education around that. And I know you guys have gone through this process of maybe more scientifically creating and formulating. And you do a lot of this in-house as well, as opposed to outsourcing it. What were the challenges in, I guess, bridging that gap? So bridging the gap, just so that I can understand the question. <laughs> yeah. Bridging the gap between what we do as in like formulating the product and what the customer wants, is that what you're asking? Partly, yes. But then also just in terms of growing up as a business and going from a stage where it's just you, like you said, you yourself made the very first product just by hand. Um, and going from there to, I guess, having a much more scientific method to the way that you formulate your products and making sure mm -hmm. that it fits what the customers are looking for and also that customers can trust and have an understanding that you're formulating things for them okay so as i mentioned before we got some early angel investment in like 2010 that was like 10k mm. um and part of that we had a formulation scientist so he was the one who helped us to get our processes in place so that we can formulate scientifically. So he would, he came down, he lived in the North. So he came down to London to watch how we made the products. And then he basically audited what we were doing and then improved those processes. So Rachel and I could get the products up to what they are now. Um, when we first started, we didn't have any credibility, like, you know, if an 18 year old person said to you i'm making this product and it's going to be good for your hair maybe we're a bit different now because you know we trust gen z and their tech savvy and whatnot yeah. but back then it was that was 10 years ago it was what do you know about hair you have no experience uh, so it took us a lot to build that credibility and that's why we wanted to get into certain stores so we can say we're in this many shops because people trust us um, when we do formulate our products, we always do a trial with customers. So we've got a product trial club. Whenever we're formulating the products, we'll try it in-house first. And, you know, thank God we've got a bigger team now. So, you know, there's eight people who can try the products in-house before it goes to our product trial club. And we do two sets of tests. So we do, we test on people who've never tried Afrocentrics products and this is the first time they're going to try it. And we do it on people who already use our products and they're going to introduce a new product into their regime. We get the feedback from that. And if we don't get a minimum of nine out of 10, we go back and we, we make it right, depending on the feedback we have. So um, that's how we get the gain the credibility. We're very transparent with our processes. Mm. Um, if you go on our YouTube and you watch like our videos, we talk about how we get the products to what they are now. And what's the fundraising journey been like? Cause I know that you said that early on you made some decisions that you might have gone back to change in terms of like giving away equity for how much money you received. And I know that you've, you've raised quite a lot in total from what I know. I think something like over, at least over 600,000 pounds, which is amazing. Half a million. Okay. So not over 6,000. Okay. Sorry. Maybe that's in dollars. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, you're right. It is in dollars. It is over 600. I absolutely hate fundraising with a passion. <laughs> and the reason why is because it takes you away from actually running your business. And also it makes you doubt yourself because you hear so many no's and you sometimes think, am I mad? Like, am I, like, is, is what I'm doing crazy? Like, mm. Um, are, are we like, should we just quit this and just find a job? 
But because investors say no to most people, you have to basically like dust the dirt off your shoulders and give yourself a prep talk and keep it moving. I remember speaking to a female founder. She was a sole founder. She said that she would hire a coach while she's fundraising so that she could, you know, basically you have someone give her a pep talk because it is very, very difficult. Mm. But I'm grateful. I have a co-founder, Rachel. So, um, and to be fair, she takes on, she leads in the fundraising. So we have to give each other the prep talks. Like, look, we've grown a lot in the last year. We've 17 X star sales in the last 12 months. Nobody can tell us that we're not doing well. If they want to say no, they should say no and just say no for honest reasons. Say I don't want to invest, it's fine. If they want to invest, it's cool. We don't want people who don't want this. Um, so yeah, but in 2018, end of 2018, we raised just under half a million. Part of that was from WeWork, SoftBank. Um, and part of it was from Black Angels. And we wanted, um, particularly wanted people from our community, from African-Caribbean background, to invest in Afrocentrics because obviously you're investing because you want a good return on your investment and we want to make more black people rich. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that was our strategy back then. We're currently raising now. So David, you know, if you know any rich individuals, (laughs) please let me know. (laughs) Sure. How much are you raising now? If that's uh, disclosable? Yeah, definitely. Two million. Okay. So we're currently raising two million now and it's been very, very difficult, particularly raising in the pandemic. There's just a lot more people who are risk averse. But again, you have to give yourself that prep talk because our numbers are really, really good. You know, our turnover is really good, but you just get scrutinized for different things. And it's you're learning to read the investor language to know whether you should invest in giving them your time. So, Mm. you know, investors who ask for information that they don't need at certain points, they're going to be time wasters where people there are some investors who are like, yeah, I've heard your pitch. I've seen your pitch deck. I love what you guys are doing. I'm going to invest. That's how the world should be, but that's not how a lot of uh, investors operate. But a lot of them are just nosy. Yeah. And, and they just want to kind of see what's out in the market. It might be good. It might not be good. But, you know, they just want to say they've spoken to world-class founders and that's it. So, yeah, we have to, we are learning to filter out the noise and the nosiness. I think particularly fundraising during COVID uh, must be quite difficult. But then I think on top of that, just in terms of the barriers to raising funding that you guys would have faced as black founders and as female founders and the combination of all of those things, do you think that that is something that is, I know we have reports now and people, you know, are starting to shed a light on those things. But I think at least for me, part of the issue that I see is just that like people just keep saying it and Mm -hmm. not actually doing anything about it. Like it's all well and good. Everyone being like, Oh, black female founders have only raised, you know, this tiny fraction of all funding that's available. But do you feel like there's enough that's being done to fix that? And, and I guess looking forward, what more do you think that people can do to be able to fix the funding gap? (sighs) I have a lot of thoughts on this. So (laughs) let me pick my words wisely. Sure. I do think like last in 2020, June 2020, the Black Lives Matter, George, murder of George, George Floyd did wake up a lot of people uh, and did make a lot of people realize that there is a problem of racism. And there were a lot of pledges made, but there was not enough follow through. Um, I think it's a bit patronizing to offer things that founders don't actually need. Mm. Um, so, oh, office hours for black females, oh, mentorship, oh, all of this stuff, mm. events. What founders actually need is money. So just, you know, de- deposit the cash and then <laughs> keep it moving. And some funds have done that. Um, they have, some, some definitely have, but some, they're just increasing their pipeline to black founders and that's about it so that they can say that they've hit XYZ metric. Um, I think the reality is for more black founders to be funded, there needs to be more black investors because a bias is real and there's no amount of training you can do to remove a bias from someone that needs to come from internal. That needs to be something that that person is aware of firstly and wants to work on. Like your business, your workplace is not going to train racism out of you. (laughs) It needs to be something that you're aware of and you um, 
actively want to work on. So I'm not saying that investors who don't invest in black founders are racist, but I am saying that they are more likely to not want to take a risk with black founders, particularly mm. with what we're doing at Afrocentrics, because not only are the founders black and female, the market is black and female. Mm. And when you come from a background where that is not your norm, you don't experience it, you don't understand the market, which is a lot of white people. In fact, most white people do not have you know close relations and close ties with black people. It's just too risky. Um, and that's not necessarily a racism thing. That's just, you know, your social media, you're just not open to, to these things. So, um, you know, when we pitch to black investors, it's, you don't have to explain things. They get it. They know that the, the market exists. They know that black people are spending so much money on grooming products. Um, so it's not, it's, it's just easier. It's a breath of fresh air when you don't have to explain, um, the market. So, I think the reality is that until there are more black investors who care about depositing cash into black run businesses, then nothing's really going to happen. We'll be right back after this break. Vacation experts at Travel and Leisure Magazine agree. Lexington, Kentucky is one of the 50 best places to travel in 2021. Escape to the authentic experiences awaiting you in the land of fine bourbon, fast horses, and more. Plan your trip today at visitlex.com. Circle K is America's thirst stop. And Dave's. Especially when Dave needs refreshments for family movie night. So Dave heads straight to Circle K, where he grabs icy Polar Pop cups and frosters for the kids and chilled beer for the grown-ups. Enjoy family movie night, Dave. We'll be here for you all summer long. And right now at Circle K, save on all 8 or 12-ounce Red Bull flavors. Buy two, get one free. So make us your first stop. Circle K, America's thirst stop. Yeah. Then we need more black decision makers who are for the community. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> who are for the community? Because you know you've got some, you've got some black people who couldn't care less. They're just, mm. they don't care. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, space, and I think you made a really, really good point in terms of, you know, not necessarily always that it's oh, you know, people are racist, but I think when you look at some of the implicit. Um, results of decisions that people make, such as maybe some VCs only consider warm introductions. Who are you going to get warm introductions from other than, you know, the people that are close to you who very often will have like exactly. a similar background, etc. Exactly. Um, and then also, like you were saying, in terms of where people choose to invest, if you're only choosing to invest in things or in markets that you know very well, and you're, you know, a white man, then clearly this is not going to be a market that you know very well, but it's a market that needs funding. And you guys can do amazing things if you are well equipped to tackle that market. Exactly. So it's kind of like, you know, with femtech, you need more female investors to invest in that because men don't really understand female reproduction. Um, so, you know, there, 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 there's a massive market there, but until you have more female investors, those female run businesses are not going to get the funding they need. And I think what you mentioned is super important. The warm introduction is all about networks. And when you're from a particular background, let's even just take away ethnicity out of it, just put class. So Rachel and I are both from working class in a city London background. Where do you have or build a network where you have access to rich individuals who can put thousands into your business? It's very rare. You, you hardly see that. Um, so it's definitely a privileged industry in that sense. So even just take out, you know, the race, ethnicity background, the, the race, ethnicity, gender thing. Let's talk about um, class. Let's talk about how a lot of startups are run by people whose parents are rich. Mm. And can put money in it. There's no such thing as a friends and family round if you're from a working class background, where you know your the responsibility is even on you to give money back to your parents to look after them. Where is the friends and family round? Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, you have to bootstrap. You have to work hard, and you know that you don't have the privilege of not working whilst running your startup because you have to pay your bills. You don't have parents who are going to you know, support your lifestyle while you run a business and test ideas. Yeah, that's a really good point. And what's that been like for you guys in terms of, because I know 
you mentioned before that you've been full-time for about four years. Rachel, your co-founder has been full-time for uh, just under two years, I think. How has that process been in terms of, I know you got some some funding early on, but being able to allocate that funding, being a, be, having to be full-time, having to be on the ground, was it a case where the business itself was always able to sustain that and things have actually just gone quite smoothly because of the growth that you've had and the traction that you've developed? Or has it been a bit more difficult? It's been difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Fundraising has definitely helped. Um, But we, it's been difficult because we know we don't pay industry rates. So so for example, we always tell our team that we know we, 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 you could be earning more somewhere else. Mm. And we know that you have sacrificed to, to build the Afrocentric vision but we will reward you when we can. Um, and those are conversations that we have with the team um, because we're very aware um, of our position. We don't pay ourselves the way that we should. We don't compensate ourselves. Rachel and I know fully well we could be earning a lot more not running this business. Um, but raising investment has basically kind of like unlocked the door for um for us to see the potential of what the business could be. If we had raised money at the beginning, we would be completely in like in a complete different way. We would be a corporation by now, mm. but you know, it was seven years of bootstrapping. And again, at that point, we didn't know it was called bootstrapping because it's just what you did. Yeah, <laughs> You just, you just keep your dream alive by working part-time and, and having it as a side hustle. Um, yeah, that's where I would. That's really good. Stop. So, I, I think um, capital makes a massive, massive difference to the right business. Um, and we actually did explore the option of getting a bank loan, but the bank said no. I think we were Barclays Bank at the time, but we had a Barclays business account, and they said no. So, yeah, it's a lot of no's. <laughs> Yeah, you hear no all the time, but that's why you have to be incredibly resilient as a founder. For me, no is not a no. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't hear no end of. I just hear no. Okay, cool. I'll try somewhere else. And what's the process been like of building the team as well? Uh, or I guess, well, two questions. One, in terms of your relationship with Rachel, even just lasting ten years in the first place, I think is something that not everyone has. So, what's been the importance of finding that right co-founder at the beginning, and then also being able to scale the team from pretty much like one or two to uh, like twelve now? I think. Yeah. Okay. So I talk about co-founder and then the team after so with the co-founder i think we just got blessed <laughs> um we didn't rachel didn't go out looking for a co-founder i didn't go out looking for a co-founder we just ended up i i always say we fell into business and i told you the story of how we started we fell into business and we have a lot of conversations about before we raised investment, we had conversations about where do we see the business going? Are we on the same page? Because we don't want someone who's, who, you don't want to work with someone who there's going to be constant tension. Uh, we have had our beefs. We we have a lot of disagreements, but we work very hard with on our communication because we both agree and acknowledge that the success of Afrocentrics is heavily dependent upon mine and Rachel's relationship. If we don't get along, the business doesn't work. Mm. So we work very hard on making sure that we communicate well. One of the things we do is if we're going to make a difficult decision, we don't do it on the phone and and we don't do it on video call. We do it in person. And even before the pandemic and everybody working from home, because Rachel has children, she works from home quite a lot anyway. So a lot of our communication would have to be on the phone. Um, so we decided that we're not going to make decisions on the phone because sometimes, you know, tone can be lost in messages. Um, you know, you can't see somebody's face. Um, you might think that they're saying something that they're not. So we only make difficult decisions or hard decisions or decisions that carry a lot of weight in person. Um, and we talk a lot about our communication. You know, I've had a lot of work to do because I'm very direct and um and my direct nature can come across as quite intimidating or um 
which is not helpful. So I've worked a lot on, on communicating in a way that best helps the other person. I strongly believe in um, doing personality tests so that it helps me to better understand people. I like get why they do certain things. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, Enneagram. personality typing thing. Mm. I think I've heard of it, but I haven't actually used it. Could you tell me a bit more? So the Enneagram system is a personality system based on numbers. So there's Enneagram one to nine um, and you're a number with a wing. Um, so I'm Enneagram eight and I don't think I have any wings. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, a seven, a wing means that you're partly, maybe a little bit of seven, maybe a little bit of nine, but you're mainly eight. I think I'm just an eight. Um, and with an Enneagram eight, I don't know if you're aware of the Myers-Briggs Yes, well. yeah, I'm um, more familiar with that one. I'll say I'm an ENTJ as well. Okay. So the personality types that I um, apparently are similar to Steve Jobs, Margaret Thatcher, Gordon Ramsay type people. <laughs> um, yeah. Who make <laughs> great leaders, but people don't tend to like them as people mm. um, because we're not very empathetic and soft and gentle and stuff like that. So I work really hard on being um a little less blunt I've always been like this from a young age from a very very young age I remember my aunties used to call me Margaret Thatcher when I was in primary school (laughs) um so for me understanding my personality type and being self-aware is helpful and Rachel also helps with that even though you know I'm not the kind of person who enjoys people pointing out flaws uh, where some people like the feedback I'd rather not have the feedback but I know that it's helpful for me so Rachel would say stuff like, okay, you said X, Y, Z in the meeting. It can come across as this, even though I know you didn't mean it to. So I'd be mindful because I noticed that when you said that, somebody else looks like they were uncomfortable. Well, I won't pick up things like that. I won't pick up social cues very easily, what she does. Mm. Um, with the team, building the team, I remember our first hire was Nadia. She used to work for free with Afrocentric. So if we had events, we'd call her. She would um come on out and help so she worked for free not because we were exploiting her but because she was rachel's friend and she just wanted to help out um as i mentioned she would travel to my house in southeast london where we were making the products um from enfield and she would pay for her travel or by herself um to help and one day rachel was like oh can we have her as an intern as we said yeah cool she could do an internship while she's looking for a job and then we said, actually, we need to hire her. And I remember she became the standard of how we hire because we used to say, we used to work with different people, like maybe interns here and there, and um, would say, oh, but not everybody's like Nadia, not everybody's like Nadia. Then we mm. changed the tone. And Rachel was like, well, if not everyone's like Nadia, we need to go and find more Nadias. Um, <laughs> and that's what we did. We we found more people who were excellent um, and we read a lot of books on leadership and running a business and building a team. Uh, and our principle is to hire slow and fire fast. If it takes us a long time to find someone, we'd rather that. Um, and once they get in, um, if they're not good, we need to let them go ASAP. Like no dilly dally in, oh, we need someone. Yeah. It's better to have nobody than a mediocre person. And we learned that the hard way. So that's how we build the team. We've got a criteria of the kind of person we want. They're not excellent. They can't work at Afrocentrics. Then also some people could be good, but they're not cut out for startup scale up life. Mm. So, you know, you have to know your strengths. If you just want a nine to five, you just want to go to work, go home, you know, have no consequences in your job, then it, this place is not for you. That's fair. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, that learning and development mm-hmm. I'm also even just thinking back to um, what we were talking about earlier as well in terms of the challenges of being black and female founders in that, you know, you hear stories of like other, you know, startups or businesses, particularly uh, in the zeitgeist or the, the businesses people like talking about a lot where, you know, the, the the actual business of them operating is only about two or three years. So in terms of the founders working together, in terms of building the team, in terms of doing all of these things, it's very quick because you get funding very early on. You just scale, scale, scale. And, oh, fantastic, voila, it all comes together. Whereas when you have to take a much longer term approach in terms of building from the ground up, starting very small, 
over the course of now coming to a decade, um, you know, building that team, finding the right mm-hmm. models of who you hire and all of those things. I, I definitely see how a lot mm-hmm. of those um, factors play out. Yep. Um, also, we, we, we learn on the job as founders. Mm-hmm. We don't have, you know, a model to, to go by when you're building a business because somebody hasn't done what you do before. Um, you're not going into a company that's been around and is established for 50 years and you have a successor. Mm. It just doesn't work that way. So, yeah, we've learned a lot from books, podcasts, um, going to workshops. Uh, we used to attend quite a few workshops on operations and hiring. But the real training ground is on the job. <laughs> what you brought up in terms of not necessarily having you know, people that have gone ahead of you, particularly within this niche and within this industry, um, makes me think of another question. And this also will tie into what you're saying about the Margaret Thatcherism and all of that. Like, do you have role models or mm-hmm. people that you look at, um, one on an individual level, but then also as a business, as kind of people that, while not necessarily being in the exact same space, are people that have traits or businesses that have traits that you'd like to emulate? Uh, yes. Oh gosh. What business would I say that I enjoy following? I really like Gymshark. Okay. Um, as a brand, um, and the founder, I think he's very charismatic. I think that what they have built is incredible from the ground up. Um, and it was literally the founder sewing the t-shirts himself. Um, I find that very inspiring. Um, Another founder that I really like is Sharmadine, who runs Beauty Stack and The Stack now. Um, Before Afrocentrics became what it is, I used to go to her events, Future Girl Corp. She used to do like free events where each week or each month or whenever they were, she would have different professionals talking about different aspects to running a business. So one could be marketing, one could be operations, one could be hiring. So I'd go to those talks and I'd learn a lot um, from those people. Um, and also I have a recruitment background, so I kind of know how to hire per se. But when you are hiring for a scale-up startup, um, you're not just trying to fill a role. You're trying to get someone who actually um, – understands and believes in the vision and wants to build something, not just wants a job. Um, people who are inspiring, those are the two women that I think about. Um, I can't really think of anyone else, but I have genuinely find like certain people for certain things inspiring. So there's a guy called Nur. Eyal, I think that's how I explain his name. He has a book called Indestructible. So like there's oh, yes, basically yeah. different skills that I feel that we need as a team or as a personal, as a founder, different skills that I think we need. We'll read certain people on that. So in terms of role models, there hasn't been a role model that we have, that I have had. And I said, I want to be like that. It's more different um, principles and skills I've said I want to build and I think need to be the core of the business. So we will read books on those. Mm. Okay. I know I don't have you forever as you are incredibly busy running your amazing business. (laughs) So I'll ask just one more question. Um, And it's kind of off the back of that. To the lots of young people that might see you guys and what you've built as a role model and as something that they would like to emulate, what advice would you have for them? taking into consideration, you know, everything you've learned over a decade of having built Afrocentrics, what things would you pass on? Oh, okay. So I get asked this question a lot, but more around what advice would you give to someone who wants to start their own business? And I usually just say, just do it. But for younger people who might see Rachel and I as role models, um, the advice I'll give them is to work hard. 
And when I say work hard, I mean, do the best you could possibly do to be the best at what you do. Um, so not do the bare minimal to get by, but to always try to have mastery over what you do. Because I think if you have that mindset, you could excel in anything, in anything you do, whether you're working within a company or running your own business or, you know, pursuing a hobby if you always try to master and be the best at what you're doing, I think that brings you a lot of fulfillment and, and joy rather than, you know, just getting by. Because I think our generation right now is quite lazy. We want to be paid crazy amounts of money to do the bare minimum. Yeah. Uh, we think we're, we're entitled to, you know, big job titles because we have six months experience doing something, which is just, you know, yeah. <laughs> not realistic so um i think we've lost the art of mastery the art of being the best at what we do because we're lazy um and that would be my advice well i think that's really really good advice and um even just yeah what you were saying in terms of mastery it also makes me think of the fact that even when people don't necessarily think they're being lazy i think we're just now taught now that the world moves so fast and we have the internet, we have this, we have that, we have VCs that do funding rather than in days where maybe you just get a business loan or something like that. I think there's this also the expectation of speed that everything must come quickly and you must get everything now. And so, yeah, if, yes. you, if you want this job or this promotion or to grow in your career, oh my gosh, you need it now. And I definitely see a lot of people that are worried about, oh my gosh, I've barely done anything. And it's like, you're three years into whatever it is that you're doing. And while there are some people for which that might be like a viable timeline to already be very far ahead at the same time, you know, within the first few mm -hmm. years, you should definitely be okay with just learning and developing. And like you say, working towards that mastery. Exactly. And that comes with time that literally Time is the only thing and your effort that is going to make a difference. You can't, you know, someone who's learning the piano is not going to be incredible after two years of, of learning. You just have to put the time in to be good at what you do. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I completely agree with you that we, I just call it microwave generation. We just want everything now. You know, we and I think it's because we have access to more information. You go on the Instagram and you can see people with their nice cars and their house houses and their amazing holidays, not realizing that those people are like maybe 10 years ahead of you in their age and their experience. Why do you want what they have without, you know, experiencing what they've done? Mm. I think we also have access to celebrities in a way that we didn't before, where before it was through magazines and on MTV. Um, and now we can see their personal lives on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, we can peer into people's lives a little bit more on YouTube as well. So that just gives us a false reality um, and makes us covet things that shouldn't really be for us at our stage in life. Mm. I think people also really underestimate just the volume of hard work that you need to be successful. Because even when you think about celebrities, like you were saying, I think people will look at, okay, uh, uh, Denzel Washington or Viola Davis or people that are successful now, even is it Taraji P. Henson, loads of these great actors or musicians or whoever else. And you completely forget. And I think this applies equally to the business that you guys have built, where people might only just come across you now or even within the last few years and see you raising all this money and see you doing all these amazing things and just not even think that you spent a decade working up to that point. Like you spent seven years before that doing all the work that you can only now capitalize on and you can only now kind of see the fruits of that work. And I think you get a lot of quote unquote celebrities that maybe they can make money and it looks really quick and it looks really easy now, but you discount very easily. I mean, some of them it is kind of overnight fame, but there's also a lot of people, particularly black people that spent like almost a decade or several decades kind of working up to a point that they can only just now capitalize on what they've worked for. Yeah, you're putting the nail on the head, exactly. I always say there's no such thing as an overnight success. Mm. There's no such thing as an overnight successful business. All of these, like, inflamed articles, we uh, 
made 10 million in six months. It's just, it's, what did you do five years before that? Mm. You know, it just makes people look better than they actually are, but there is just no such thing as overnight success if you do things properly. Yeah. And even when you do have overnight success, like it's, it's truly one in a million. And I know that, like you said, because we have so much access over social media, it looks like, wow, there's so many of these things happening, but that's also partly just this confirmation bias or survivorship bias where you only see the successful stories. Like the only people that will get articles written about them are the one successful people that managed to do it within whatever time frame. The hundreds or thousands of people that also tried to do the exact same thing within that time frame either didn't make it or it's just <laughs> going to take a lot longer for them to make anything of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely agree. Completely, completely agree. Yeah, most investments don't work most businesses fail and it's it, it boggles my mind because i remember we had a meeting with a venture capitalist and he was like um the way that they work out their metrics and i was sitting in a meeting thinking this is just very very foolish basically in a roundabout way that made him sound really smart he said we have about a three percent success rate and i just said Sorry, don't pull me, don't don't say, don't pull me into your 3% success rate. Be, be, what I'm hearing is I do not make decisions well. If you only have a 3% success rate and you're basically casting your bets knowing that only 3% of the deals are actually going to work, then there's something wrong with your process. You shouldn't be mm -hmm. telling me you have a 3% success rate and gloating. Not even, he wasn't gloating, sorry. He was just saying that that's how their system works. So basically they have to, find businesses who they think is going to return the whole fund because they only have a 3% success rate. That whole system is messed up. Now I could never tell our team we have a 3% success rate and, and that's fine. Hmm. <laughs> Does that make sense? But that's a lot of venture capital firms because most of the businesses they invest in fail, they have to rely on the one unicorn that's going to return their hundred million pound fund make better decisions <laughs> don't blame the founders make better decisions <laughs> i think that's awesome that's good advice for people on both sides advice for uh, for founders themselves and then also founders for vcs and people uh mm -hmm. investing but awesome thank you so much for making the time i really appreciate it and i'm sure that people listening to this will have gotten so much value from hearing about your story Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time. Circle K is America's thirst stop, and yours, especially when the weather gets, and you need to stay, stay refreshed on the go with ice cold Circle K favorites like freshly ground iced coffee, Froster, Polar Pop Cup, and more. And right now at Circle K, save on all 8 or 12 ounce Red Bull flavors. Buy two, get one free. When life's go, 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 make us your first stop. Because Circle K is America's thirst stop. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.